man, Jay, it's gotta be rough to be those time-displaced ex-kids. Little bit. All stuck in the dysfunctional shadows of their adult selves? I mean, half of those adults are dead. Or kind of dead. Or quasi-undead. Iceman's doing pretty well. Huh, yeah, latching onto the whole second chances thing. A lot of them are trying to do that. The problem, though, is they're still basically the same people, or largely the same people, as the ones who made decades of really bad choices, so their alternate takes are often just different directions of ill-advised. Like, say, there's Warren, you know, he didn't go Archangel, but on the other hand, now he's got the Black Vortex fire wings and all the baggage that goes with those. Cyclops mostly just seems to be gritting his teeth and dealing. As he is wont to do. Jean's in the same boat as Angel, pretty much. I mean, she wanted to get away from expectations and all of that stuff, and now she's literally saddled with her own ghost. What about Beast? He's a smart guy. Surely he can learn from his own example and keep his dick out of the space-time continuum. I mean, he's not meddling with science as much. Smart kid. What's he been doing instead? Learning sorcery from an extra-dimensional Madeline Pryor. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 177 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And oh man, do we have a very special episode for you today. Yes, and by very special, we mean that kind of very special. We are going to be covering some licensed X-Men tie-ins, a couple of which are PSAs. You know, like the kind of thing that was at the end of Transformers or G.I. Joe episodes to make it clear that it wasn't just to sell action figures. The, the one that isn't technically a PSA is about centaurs in Texas, so, you know... It's a thing. Yup. Now, um, a number of you have asked, so when are we going to get to, you know, the big 1991 relaunch that was one of the biggest X-Men events ever? And the answer is, why do you care about that when you could be reading about centaurs in Texas? The other answer, although that's a valid one, is uh, next episode. We're going to get to it next episode, so... That's right. We are going, for for our winter special this year, we are going to be launching the all-new, all-different... Not actually either of those, but new titled and best-selling single issue of all time, X-Men number one. Indeed. But before we do that, we have some important life lessons to share with you, our listeners. I gotta say, doing this, well, while we're doing this, I feel like we should be referencing the PSAs of the eras where these came out, but... The only versions of those I've ever actually encountered are the weird-ass remixed G.I. Joe ones. Like, I've never seen any of the originals. Oh, yeah, the ones by that Fensler guy, the who wants a body massage and that kind of thing. I watch those way, way too much. Exactly. So, like, those are my sense of what PSAs were like. I mean, they were pretty much like that, but a little less drugged out, I I assume. The thing is, like, when you watch stuff when you're a little kid, everything seems normal. Like, everything just seems expected no matter how bizarre it is. And you watch it again as a grown-up, and you're just like, what the hell is this? Sometimes it's because it sucks. Like, I'm sorry, but the Thundercats cartoon really, really doesn't hold up. And sometimes it's just because it's weird as shit and actually kind of delightful, like, say, The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Although I guess we watched that when we were a little bit older. I mean, I watched that when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. So I I don't think I'm necessarily a great example for that. But the thing is, you know, that that's also a really good argument against the people who who are like, you know, how am I supposed to explain this to my kids as arguments against things like same sex public displays of affections? Like, have you ever asked a child to tell you the premise of, say, SpongeBob SquarePants? Exactly. Kids will accept all kinds of stuff. Yeah, like two dudes kissing isn't even going to ruffle them. You can just be like, sometimes men kiss, sometimes people who like each other kiss each other, and it's not really a gender thing. And they'll just be like, whatever, I'm going to go watch more things about this sponge and his adventures. I've never seen SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm sorry, it doesn't hold up beyond that. Maybe he cleans stuff. I'm assuming he cleans stuff. Or um, maybe um, athletic Greek boys dive after him in Tarpon Springs, Florida. That's one of the only things I know about Tarpon Springs, Florida, and sponges. Oh, hey, I read that novel. Or maybe he absorbs? Sponges absorb. Exactly. Like Invader Zim's friend in the Best Friends episode. Also, I think they're technically like collective organisms. So he's actually a a, a weird gestalt creature, probably. Oh, man, that's actually kind of awesome. I hope they explore that in the cartoon, which I have also never seen. I'm going to assume they do. So I would say, but we digress, but kind of this entire episode is a digression. So do you want to get to the more relevant part of the digression? 
All right. So we're going to be looking at three comics today, which span a fairly wide time frame um, from all along the X-Men's careers. And the first one is, I think, actually the latest published, and that is Be Extra Safe with the X-Men. Technically, its actual title is Be Extra Safe with blockbuster video Kid Print and the X-Men, but no one actually wants to say all of that, and two of those three concepts are effectively defunct by now. That's right, both safety and the X-Men have gone the way of the dodo. That's right, Blockbuster Video lives forever. So this was during the VHS era. For our younger listeners, that was a time when recordings were put onto these strange plastic boxes that you had to put in little rewinders that would make weird noises for a long time to watch them again. But you could take a VHS tape of your kid. And that way, if your kid was ever kidnapped or lost or whatever, law enforcement could use those videos to get a picture of your kid's mannerisms and what they looked like beyond two-dimensional photos and stuff like that. Actually, a pretty cool idea, I gotta say. Unfortunately, if you actually had a child who was two-dimensional and stuck still at all times, you were still pretty much fucked. See, I assumed that this was about, like, fingerprinting children or something. So, obviously, I did not actually do that research that you did. So, thank you for that. Or, or wait, was that something you learned when you worked at Blockbuster? Because you, you did, like, a few years after this. Was KidPrint still around at that point? KidPrint was still around at that point, but I still never heard of it, so I guess people didn't use it. But I just want to point out, we're only a few minutes into this educational episode, and we've learned something already. But it's not still around, I don't think. You know, it's about history. History is important. Now, the other thing I learned when I was researching the information around this comic is that it was written by a guy named Mariano, which, you know, just a first name, not technically very descriptive, but apparently this is really Mariano Nicieza, Fabian Nicieza's brother. This is one of Fabian Nicieza's brother's comic credits. Good job for him, because this is actually a pretty decent comic. I Well, to a point. Normally, I associate PSA comics with really terrible writing and art. And this is an exception. This is the characters are pretty much in character. The art is actually really nice. And not only that, but the lessons in it are really sound. Like, I really think, I think these are all things that would actually be useful for a kid to learn. But thankfully, it's not just something you want to poke at your kid and never look at yourself, because it is also bonkers. I'm so excited about talking about some of the, I suppose you could call them plot points in this comic. There's a specific one I want to get to later, but um, but this is specifically, as, as you might have guessed from the Be Extra Safe and the kid print aspect of this, this is a comic about stranger danger. And it makes a point of teaching kids some common sense stuff, but also to trust their own instincts and that it's okay to, to say no to grownups and things like that, which are good. And the art is actually really lovely. There are also some really terrible activity pages in it, which we will get to a little bit later. Here's the thing, though. One of the problems with PSA comics, one of the myriad frequent problems with PSA comics, and I have a personal story about this that I may or may not tell on the podcast, but... Um, I'm intrigued. Oh, you you know this story. This is this is the lacrosse story. Ah, yes. You were there for some of this, but... um. <laughs> The problem with these comics is that they usually want to have them star an ordinary kid. And there are stories that you can tell with an ordinary kid and a whole bunch of superheroes giving them life advice in normal situations. But unfortunately, most of those are going to be really forced and also leave the superheroes coming across as super creepy because why are they all just there? You know, they just sort of turn up. So finding a premise for them to be there is always a challenge. And something I really appreciate about this comic is that it does not even try. Like, the X-Men just happen to be there, they say their stuff, and they leave. I don't even know if, if they leave. I mean, the framing story isn't a framing story so much as just a frame. That is an excellent point. They might just go back to loitering around the outskirts of the playground, um, which, again, is a point that we'll get to over the course of this and goes with the super, grown-up superheroes seeming very creepy. So we open... Speaking of creepy adults, we open with a man in a very makeshift superhero uniform trying to lure a child away from a playground. And I know that this man is supposed to be a bad guy, that he's supposed to be a generically evil adult. But the thing is, he also really reminds me of D-Man. Okay, so I only found out about D-Man a few years ago, and my life was changed. If there are any listeners who don't know who D-Man is, we should probably rectify that, like, right now. Oh, God. Miles, do you, you want to do the honors here? 
I mean, the short version is D-Man is a superhero whose costume is composed of discarded parts of other superheroes' costumes. So it's like the old Daredevil uniforms, tunic, and Wolverine's helmet, and somebody else's boots. And he's kind of an everyman, but also sort of creepy and sad dude. I think he was mostly in Captain America, and I don't know a ton about him, but that uniform is amazing. And I agree, the creepy dude's superhero costume here, it looks similar. It's kind of makeshift. But it doesn't even contain the specific references to other superhero costumes. It's just sort of a hood and some tights under some shorts that match his shirt. They are shorts, though, not underwear. And I appreciate that detail. I mostly know, know D-Man from, um, from Alias and from, from the Jessica Jones comics. Or I think maybe the pulse, the one where the one where she's the one where she's writing for J. Jonah Jameson. Um, and there's there's a whole like D-Man side plot in one in one issue. I've been meaning to read that for a while. Now apparently I especially do. But this villain here, the one who's trying to abduct a child we will uh, soon learn is named Terrence, his opening line, not really a good one. His luring children game is not very good. This is his pitch. Hey kid, look, I got a ball too. Okay. Okay, sad man who may or may not be D-Man, here's the thing. Most playground games don't require two balls. So the fact that you've got a ball and this kid has a ball is actually a better reason for you to not associate with each other than for you to actually interact. Although Terrence is nonetheless taken in. He asks if the creepy guy is one of the X-Men. And you know... Normally, I would think this was ridiculous, but as we find out, the X-Men also make a habit of lurking in the outskirts of this playground, so Terrence may actually have a pretty sound reason for assuming that the uncomfortable masked stranger who is offering him a ball is actually a legit superhero. And in fact, the X-Men jump on in very quickly as Wolverine lifts not exactly D-Man over his head and the rest of the X-Men begin to give Terrence some advice. Note, we will not actually see maybe or maybe not D-Man for the rest of this issue, so it's possible that Wolverine took him off and killed him. I'm pretty sure Wolverine is just finally dicing him off panel, it's true. And at this point, I also do want to say, so we're making a lot of light of these PSAs, but obviously kidnapping and stuff like that are totally real things, and they're totally serious and messed up, and so comics like this do have a point. The comic is just kind of silly. Someone totally straight up tried to abduct me from a department store when I was a kid. Whoa, were they dressed like this guy? They were not. Oh. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. But they did actually use a tactic really similar to one in this comic, so it, it didn't work. I was there with my mom, so, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, what advice do the X-Men have for Terrence? First, Jubilee, as as the youngest X-Men, is, is the first to connect with Terrence. And she tells him, first of all, that he should trust his feelings and never feel like he has to stay in a situation that makes him uncomfortable. I have an objection here, which is that if Terrence had trusted his feelings, he might have actually trusted this guy more because he thought the guy was an X-Man. His feelings in this case were wrong. Trust your feelings, good advice overall, but not necessarily relevant right here. You know, Beast is actually on top of that because he specifies to Terrence that he should be careful with all strangers, including the X-Men. So it's possible that Terrence could still trust his feelings, but just not assume that X-Man means safe. We don't know that he thought maybe D-Man was a good guy, just that he thought that he was an X-Man. He may associate X-Men with, like, creepers who lurk outside playgrounds and lure children off. I'm just saying, Sabretooth was one of the X-Men once, and I am not ready to trust him, at least not the Earth-616 version. Valid. Valid. And in fact, Cyclops tells Terrence that it is okay to say no to an adult. I've said that before that I think this comic actually has really good lessons in it. And this is one of them. And it's one that I wish more things like this emphasized because we teach kids to defer to adults. And we're really, really, really hardline about that, like including ones they're not related to, that you're always supposed to be polite to adults, that kids owe adults a degree of like obedience and civility that's not reciprocal. And I think explicitly telling kids that it's okay to say no to grown-ups is something that really needs to be spelled out in the face of all that conditioning. And this is, you know, having Cyclops ju jump in here brings up a point that for me makes this a much more effective and somewhat poignant comic, which is that if you're familiar with the characters who appear in this, all of them but one had really horrifically awful childhoods that involved a lot of abduction and coercion. So they're doing the superhero thing, but they're also implicitly basically out here trying to spare other kids from the shit they went through, which is cool. Like they've they've got they have they have some some firsthand experience with with these situations and and not having, you know, the tools that they are imparting to Terrence. Well, and 
it's an interesting choice that the comic chooses to tell us a story from Jubilee's past, which seems to have been created for this comic, rather than Cyclops talking about, okay, so there was this guy named Jack of Diamonds. This is complicated, Terrence. You want to sit down? This will take a while. No, no. See, the thing is, Cyclops' terrible childhood is not wildly relatable. Jubilee, on the other hand, A, is the closest to Terrence's age, so the one who can who can talk like a cool kid and be relatively understood. And B is the one of them who's, like, even remotely normal. Like, this kid is not going to click with, like, Storm's, well, when I was a child thief in Cairo, or or Wolverine's, look, you know, we just never go there, never go there. See, now I just want Cable to be here. All right, kid, sit down and grab a gun. This is going to take a week. You know, I actually have a theory about that, and it's technically later in my notes, but I'm going to put it in now, which is that any PSA is more effective if it's delivered by Cable. <laughs> I am entirely in favor of this, yes. Because here's the thing. So Cable's got like 70 guns and a metal arm and he always looks incredibly angry and he's from the future and he's always pretty like fucked up and battle damaged. And if that guy comes into your classroom and tells you not to text and drive, you figure there's got to be a really good reason. You just 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 go with it. He's kind of like the X-Men equivalent of that old, scared, straight prison avoidance program where the scary ex-cons would talk about how terrible jail was. No, no, he just comes in and is cable and then delivers the normal PSA. He doesn't tell you, or you'll turn out like me, or or your future will go to hell and apocalypse will take over. He just says, don't text and drive, it's dangerous, but he does it while being cable, and that's enough. Although imagine how effective it, it would be if he said, don't text and drive, or your future will be terrible and apocalypse will take over. The thing is, that shit doesn't work. That's why D.A.R.E. doesn't work, because using really, really exaggerated, overblown threats just teaches kids that the other information in there is also exaggerated and overblown and inaccurate. No, oh, that is a good point. And in fact, I think that's in my notes later as well about D.A.R.E. specifically. Yeah, D.A.R.E. doesn't work, kids. Um, D.A.R.E. Is, is ineffectual, and so was the smoke-free class of 2000, which we'll also make fun of more later. I mean— Although I guess neither of us smokes. Yeah, I've never had a cigarette even once, so uh, at least in a couple of instances. But, you know, the only thing that act ever actually seriously tempted me to was the smoke-free class of 2000 bullshit, so... <laughs> there is that. All right. Back to the playground where the X-Men are lurking. So um, Jubilee tells, tells Terrence a story about one day when she snuck out of the X-Mansion because um, she just wanted to go hang out, do something, not with a bunch of grown-ups in the middle of a weird old house in Westchester, which is entirely reasonable. No one wants to hang around in Westchester. And um, she she almost got abducted. And this is the part where we learned the second piece of advice the comic has to offer, which is to always bring a buddy. Excellent advice, but who would Jubilee have brought? I mean, I think we're given to assume that this is basically the 90s cartoon version of the X-Men based on the art style and the costumes and that sort of thing. So Jubilee doesn't have a lot of options. What do you think, Jay? I mean, I think if you're going to sneak out and go on criminal hijinks with someone, you should always bring Storm. Because Storm is like, Storm is the high school's teacher who seems really together and serious, but who, when you run into them after class, is basically like wearing a leather vest and hanging halfway out of a convertible. And like yelling. I feel really good about that. I was going to say Morph because he would be a lot of fun, but... No. He's not really responsible, like, at all. Also, he's an asshole for like seven-eighths of the series. Actually, no, you know, I think early in the series, at least, Beast would be pretty fun to sneak out with. Yeah, yeah, I'll buy that. Basically, as long as it's not Gambit, you're probably going to be fine. It's not just to bring a buddy. Like, you should also tell someone if you're planning to sneak out so that they'll know you're gone and they'll know to look for you if you're not back by a certain point. This applies in the internet age, too. If you're going by an, on an OkCupid date, make sure that you've got a check-in time with someone. Make sure that they know where you're going to be. And if possible, make sure you can get a photograph of the government-issued photo identification of the person you're meeting up with so that if they are a serial killer, people will know which shitty fake ID maker to go after to find their real information. Exactly. However, Jubilee doesn't have to deal with anything quite on that level, but she does have some problems. She does. So Jubilee is stopped by a couple in a car, and I love this detail. This detail is my favorite thing about this entire comic, which is that the people who try to abduct Jubilee, the bad guys, are an upper-middle-class, middle-aged, white, hetero couple. Like, they could have gone in other directions with this, and they went in this one, and I really like it, because it, it, it underlines, I think, one of the main messages of the comic, which is that 
no one is inherently trustworthy by virtue of being in a demographic that you've been told to trust. Right. I mean, if someone tries to abduct you, they could be an elderly, affluent white couple in a car, or they could be a dude in a park with a makeshift superhero costume who has a ball that he wants to share with you. We do not know that there is not an overlap between those two groups. I mean, I can, if you put a superhero costume on either of those, the members of that couple in like a part bald cap, they could probably reasonably be that guy. Well, that's entirely reasonable. So Jubilee is smart here. She does indeed trust her feelings, as Terrence is now learning to do, and she finds a police officer to ask him for help, and the white couple drives away. They get scared. Now, the find a cop and cops are trustworthy advice is conditionally useful. Know your neighborhood, know your region. I wish that we could say that people who are wearing uniforms are always trustworthy, but I really wish we could say that about adults in general. And there are a lot of problems with this particular sentiment for, I think, reasons that should be fairly obvious at this point. Fortunately for Jubilee, she lives in a comic book, which means that the police are trustworthy. And all she really tells them is, you know, my name's Jubilation Lee. I I live at this place. I need some help getting home safely. Could you give me a ride? which is actually a pretty reasonable thing to go up and say. And she is very, very worried that she's going to get in trouble when she gets home. But as it turns out, all of the grown-up X-Men, who are reasonable people and also aware of the fact that the world is full of horrible people, are mostly just really relieved that she's home safe and she made the right choices. That's, that's good, and all's well that ends well. Except Beast decides that he wants to help. And that's when it gets really weird. This is my favorite part of this comic by a wide margin. This is the part where the comic kind of gets away from itself and where it might be good to have an essay as a family meeting about narrative structure and a couple other things related to child endangerment. Because what Beast decides, Beast informs Terrence that he's actually got a similar story to Jubilee's. Is this a story about Beast encountering stranger danger? No, it is not. Beast's story is actually about the time he climbed out of a television set into the living room of a different random child named Jimmy, whom Beast had never met, who was home alone, to yell at Jimmy about not giving out personal information over the phone. This raises so many questions! Mostly, Hank McCoy, what the hell is even wrong with you? I mean, I don't doubt that Hank McCoy could easily build a television transmitter of some sort where he could climb out of somebody's screen the ring style. Like, that's plausible. But was he just watching this kid? Because that's kind of creepy. Yeah, he just fucking climbs out of the television of this child who is home alone as the kid is answering the phone. And when the person's like, are your mommy and daddy there? He starts to say they're not home and Beast stops him. And they, they, you know, they give some good advice about what to say if you're home alone and someone calls or if you're a kid and you get a call from a stranger on the phone. But I, and this is all in, again, in the story that Hank is telling Terrence at the park. I'm just saying, like, if Jimmy had trusted his feelings, he would have, like, thrown a blender at the furry guy that just came out of his television or something. And I think he would have been entirely justified in doing so. That's not okay, Hank McCoy. This is, as I assume, why Hank made the point earlier on that kids should not even default trust the X-Men because clearly the X-Men are not fucking trustworthy. But I gotta say, if we're gonna have an X-Men PSA that comes out in the 1990s, having Beast climb out of somebody's television to give them advice, that's actually pretty era-appropriate, if no other kind of appropriate. Yeah, but it should be, like, someone he knows. Like, he should be giving this advice to, I I don't know, I'm sure the X-Men have kid friends. The Power Pack, he could give this advice to the Power Pack. Actually, the Power Pack and Spider-Man were in a PSA comic uh, talking about preventing child sexual abuse uh, a long time ago. I I never read it, but I always thought that was a good choice. It's a deeply uncomfortable comic, but it's, 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 I I, I haven't read it in a very long time. And I, part of the trouble with, with that specific flavor of comic is that, you end up in this weird euphemistic territory of we can't actually talk about the thing that we're trying really hard to talk usefully about. Yeah, there is that. That's true. So there's that. But um, yeah, but no. So so the point is that it would be it would be maybe a little bit more OK for him to come out of the Power Packs television and tell them not to do that. But honestly, those kids kind of have their shit together and they probably already know. Well, also, we know from the Power Pack tie-ins we've done covering X-Men stuff that their parents are very, very fragile. If a weird thing happens, their parents are going to lose it and not be okay until their brains are rewritten. The thing is, their parents are both very fragile and very irresponsible, so, eh. But also very charming. They try so hard. They just fuck up, like, all the time. 
I mean, that's true of parents in general. Parents are people, Miles, and sometimes parents have children who have been given superpowers by a space unicorn. Eh, valid point. More often than you'd think, actually. And Dr. Spock does not really adequately cover that. <laughs> yup. Well, it's not just good advice for Terrence that this comic has to offer, because like you said, Jay, there are some activity book-style activities. Boy, howdy are there ever. Um, and I'm only going to talk about a couple of these. So most of these activities are kind of pointless, but um, there's one of them that I, I do want to address because it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and it continues the, well, we're kind of, we've got the right idea, but we're not quite getting their spirit. By having a survival training form and safety pledge that's illustrated with a picture of Gambit, who I assume never does any of these things under any circumstances. Like, Gambit makes only very poor and unsafe decisions. Maybe Gambit's an example of who the kids should watch out for. Like, specifically, Remy LeBeau. Yeah, intentionally or not, he may that, that, that may be his function relative to that form. There's also a letter to Jubilee from a child who wants to know if it's okay to accept a ride home from her school's janitor. And the answer is basically, run it by your parents first, which is, in fact, usually the correct answer to that. So, we, like Terrence, have now learned to be extra safe. What we have not yet learned about is how amazing the 1983 State Fair of Texas will be. But if we encounter strangers there, we know how to respond. Okay, so this is one of those comics that I've actually been wanting to cover, like, since the podcast started. I'd never read it up until we were doing research for this episode, but the cover is really compelling. Like, it's got a big cowboy statue in the background, and there's a naked centaur dude with wings, and the X-Men are fighting Magneto. And all of these things are actually directly relevant to the plot. The thing with this comic is that it somehow managed to both be less weird and much weirder than I was expecting. I know what you mean, yeah, it feels like just a standard Silver Age adventure that happened to come out in 1983, but any given plot point is just, wait, what? I was, I was expecting more carnies, frankly. No carnies. But, so this comic was free, actually. It came out with the Dallas Times-Herald in 1983, and it was a cross-promotion. Um, and it was free, I assume, primarily because no one in their right mind would ever have paid for it. I would have paid so much money for this comic back then had I but known, and also I was one years old, so maybe I wouldn't have, but still... Yeah, what kind of money did you have, and what kind of weird shit were you into as a toddler? Good God, man. Well, you know, I had my gig at Blockbuster. I was telling, telling you about that earlier, remember? Yeah, I knew you then. You were like 20. Time is very confusing. X-Men has taught us that. But this was basically a cross-promotion. You know, on the one hand, uh, the X-Men, popular superheroes of the time, were promoting the State Fair of Texas. On the other hand, people who got the newspaper were maybe seeing the X-Men for the first time and presumably could be convinced to buy more of the comics. Win-win for everybody including us in 2017. Now, this being 1983, chronologically, this was around Wolverine's wedding and Storm's change to her punk outfit when she was in Japan. But like we were saying, the feel of this is so gloriously Silver Age. You can actually date comics from this age pretty well because this is also the era of Kitty Pride's rapidly changing codenames and uniforms. And this is during the Ariel era, which is between Sprite and Shadowcat. As far as the creative team, the plot was done by Jim Salakrup, who briefly edited Uncanny X-Men during the Dark Phoenix Saga. The script was by a guy named David Kraft. The pencils were by Kerry Gamble and Alan Kupperberg. And the cover was by the famous John Romita Sr., that amazing cover I just described. So even before we get to the State Fair, this comic answers the age-old question, does dignity have a price? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. In addition to Ariel and her glorious green outfit, which I actually really like, we have Professor Xavier, Cyclops, Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, and Nightcrawler on the team. And we open in the danger room, although we're only going to be there briefly, because again, remember, the point of this is to get the X-Men to the Texas State Fair. Well, and the point of any danger room opening is also to introduce the characters to anyone who might not have read X-Men before, like, say, a subscriber to a Dallas newspaper. And the dialogue gets that right out there. What do we need to know? We need to know the names and the powers, as Cyclops says. Quick, Storm! I'll deflect these missiles with my power beam! To which Storm responds, While I unleash a windstorm to disperse these paralyzing gases! Kids, this is how you should always introduce yourself in new scenarios, ideally every day on the playground, like as the evening starts or whenever you're in like a social situation with people you haven't seen for the last five minutes. Right. You always want to narrate your actions and ideally also your motivations so as not to confuse people that you're meeting. You might as well just say your name to each other a whole lot as well. Miles and I literally do this every time we start a conversation together, like when we haven't talked for a few days. 
will say, you know, I, Jay, will call you on Zencaster. I, Miles, shall speak into the microphone unencumbered by my trusty yet omnipresent beard. I, Jay, continue to have a wildly inconsistent voice and likely will for the next several years. <laughs> oh, well. Well, anyway, Professor Xavier calls the team out of their training session into the Danger Room's control room, as Kitty Pride thinks to herself about how her power seems so inadequate. These are definite steps backward for her from her 1983 continuity, and really for a lot of the characters. It's almost like they've been reset to their first appearance personalities in some ways. Although to be fair, in those moments of self-doubt, Kitty Pride gets more distinct personality than all of the other X-Men in this story put together. Quite true. Professor Xavier helpfully exposits, Cerebro found a new mutant in Texas, and the X-Men need to get to this mutant before Magneto, the mutant arch-criminal, recruits him, because Silver Age premise. Meanwhile in Dallas, at the State Fair's horse barn, a kid named Danny is rotating the tires on his horse when a trench coat and fedora stranger shows up to ask him, you know, a common question that he deals with every day as a State Fair horse hand, namely... Daniel Wiley, why do you labor for ordinary mortals? The fuck, says Danny. And we transition from that opening line to the food court with the wonderful caption. Many beguiling lies later. I actually love everything about this comic, and that caption right there is easily in the top ten. Oh yeah, me too. Like, this comic is terrible, but it's really entertaining. Danny explains to the stranger, who he trusts a lot because of his beguiling lies, his amazing story. He recently discovered that he can turn into a winged centaur. A naked winged centaur. That's part of it. That's an important part of it. He was wearing clothes, and then when he's a centaur, he's not even wearing a shirt. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, centaurs, they're not modest. But the stranger explains from underneath his fedora that it's cool because he loves horses too. And of course, after the conversation, narrates to himself as Magneto in his awesome Magneto outfit that this kid is going to join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants once he learns to trust Magneto. See, what I learned from this comic, what I think the really important lesson is, is that no one really likes horses. <laughs> it's all lies. I believe Danny. Like, literally, if someone tells you that they love horses, they are lying to try to get you to do crimes. Well, the X-Men, having tracked Danny to the state fair in Dallas, arrive at the fair in their civilian clothes and split up to look around. Xavier narrates to the readers of the Dallas newspaper. It's obvious that this fair has too much to see in just one day. We'll have to return tomorrow, starting at the Cotton Bowl. Charles Xavier, how much are they paying you? They're not. I just always speak like a man in a commercial. I actually kind of buy that. Yeah, no, it sort of goes with berating people, too. Like, like I, I could totally see him guilt-tripping someone for using the wrong detergent for 15 seconds. <laughs> well, true to Xavier's word, the X-Men do indeed come back the next day to check out the football game, where Magneto, who's with Danny, sees the X-Men and runs away. They chase him to the horse barn, where Magneto reveals his sweet threads and informs Danny that the X-Men really just want to enslave him. Um, and he uses his powers to attack himself, and, and then defend, he, he, has, he throws a bunch of horseshoes at himself using magnetism, um, and Danny has seen enough and, and turns into a centaur. At which point Magneto dubs Danny Noble Equus. Okay, we're gonna have to blind you after this, but, you know. So the fight goes about how anyone who's ever read X-Men would expect. I mean, given that this is gonna be some people's first X-Men comic, that's probably fine, right? <laughs> oh god, I thought you were gonna say about how anyone who's read Equus would expect. <laughs> right, exactly. It's terrifying. Daniel Radcliffe's there. He's great. So Magneto uses magnetism to take out, you know, the people with metal in them, Wolverine and Colossus. And along with the help of Noble Equus, Danny in his shirtless winged centaur form, Magneto's winning. I'm really torn right now. Because on one hand, I am on record as being solidly opposed to horses. On the other hand, watching a centaur trample Charles Xavier was actually pretty satisfying. Yeah, it's like, you know, the Alien versus Predator tagline is, whoever wins, we lose. This is, whoever wins, we win. No, whoever wins, we lose. This is, this is Charles Xavier and a winged centaur. 
Oh, okay. One of them is going to survive, I suppose. I really do love also, though, how Cyclops helpfully narrates as Magneto takes off. I mean, they really want to make sure the readers can follow what's going on, even if they've never read a superhero comic. He's using his magnetic powers to fly! So Danny and Magneto, they're definitely winning, like we said, but Danny gets concerned because one of Magneto's attacks almost hurt the horses. Uh-oh, and um, this is where Magneto makes his fatal error, where he gives away his plot because Danny expresses his concern, and Magneto scoffs. Horses. Who cares about the idiotic horses? The X-Men were right. You are a deceiver. It's like Danny's not just a single-issue voter, he's a single-issue everything. Yeah, no, literally all he cares about are horses. I'm not going to talk about what I think Danny goes and does after this comic is over, but I, I think we can all sort of agree that it's best that we just don't talk about it. I know that that was redundant, but like, I can't not talk about this enough. <laughs> so Noble Equus knocks Magneto to the ground, at which point Big Tex, who is the giant cowboy statue mascot of the fair, kicks Magneto unconscious. Yeah, that definitely happens. And it is definitely Big Tex who does this and not like one of the X-Men or someone manipulating the Big Tex statue. It's it's Big Tex. And he, he looks like Ronald Reagan, but a giant cowboy. And I gotta say, this is not selling me on the Texas State Fair. No, no, it's great. If a stranger pretends to like horses but is actually a supervillain, then the X-Men and Big Tex will help you out. This makes perfect sense. Any centaur who goes shirtless and grows wings when he transforms would have a lot to learn from this comic. So the X-Men, having been victorious, invite Danny to join their team, but he wants to stay with his horses for reasons that we very specifically will not talk about. Professor Xavier's totally cool with it, though, saying... I guess if it's consensual. That's not what he says at all. Fine. We understand, and we gladly accept your invitation to see more of this wonderful state fair. Okay, Charlie has got to be drawing a paycheck here. There is no other possibility. I mean, he could just be trolling the shit out of the X-Men. Eh, possibly that. Or, you know, he might just really, really, really like fairs. I mean, they're fun. I get it. So the heroes wonder how Magneto was finally taken out, at which point we zoom in on Big Tex, who winks. Which leads us into next time, the X-Men versus Big Tex, the statue that walks like a man. I wish that that were real. I would, I would, really, I would definitely buy a comic book about the X-Men fighting three-story-tall Ronald Reagan in Texas at the state fair. Me too. But just like the Stranger Danger... I would also fight a large statue of Ronald Reagan at a Texas state fair, and that's why I'm never going to be welcome in Texas. <laughs> that and no other reason. Look, I'm delightful. I lived in... I have, I have spent way more time in Texas than you have, and I didn't get arrested once, possibly because I was 13 years old and mostly reading. That could be. I've actually never been to Texas. I'm told it's quite nice. I like the food, I think. I mean, I was in Houston and I was taking summer classes at Rice and again was 13, so that. Um, I gather that Austin is fairly pleasant. Hmm, excellent. One of these days, one of these days. But we don't just get a comic involving shirtless centaur boys and giant statues which, which come to life to kick Magneto. We also get an activity book, just like the last comic. And there are so many things here. So Jay, I know you limited your activity book discussions in the safety comic to just a couple things. I can't do that here. They're all amazing. We have a word search on Professor X's giant forehead. We have a get to know the X-Men page, which I guess isn't really an activity page, but is worth talking about just for the caption about Wolverine. Five feet, three inches of pure dynamite would best describe him. That's not true at all. That is inaccurate. It describes him better than some things would. We get another word search, but not on Professor X's giant forehead this time. We get Professor X asking us to name animals from their silhouettes, Spider-Man advertising basically everything, and best of all, a connect the dots in which Cyclops says, I am Cyclops. Whatever you're doing, I'm here to stop you. Now. See, this is one of those moments, you know, you say the characterization is anachronistic, but I feel like Cyclops being distinctly against fun is a timeless, timeless moment. What's also timeless is the next comic we're going to cover because it was published three different times. With two different sets of artwork, but the exact same script. I should say, we've discussed the creative teams on all of this comic. This is the only one where the original creative team is entirely uncredited. This is a comic that I know from the Twitters when I was talking some shit about it earlier today that some of you are already familiar with. It is not technically an X-Men comic. In fact, the logo at the top of it is Spider-Man. But it does feature Storm vaguely prominently. 
I mean, mostly she gets knocked out and shoved in a closet, but um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. And, and, and it's an amazing comic, so we're going to talk about it. And it is called Smokescreen, and it is fucking bananas. It is. And this is actually the only comic we're covering today that I had when I was a kid. In fact, somehow I had two copies of it. I don't seem to have them anymore, but I remember being amazingly, delightfully baffled by it. And I noticed that you still don't smoke. Uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say that while the Smoke Free Class of 2000 thing didn't help, this comic right here must be solely responsible. I talked earlier in context of, of the Stranger Danger comic about some of the weaknesses of using superheroes in PSAs, and this comic highlights a few others. Because here's the thing about an anti-smoking PSA. There's really nothing to fight. The main reasons not to smoke are that it's really bad for you, and it smells bad, and it costs money. That's really it. I mean, I guess fire hazard too, but honestly, like, you know, so, so, so are candles. And most of, most of the other stuff around it is, is pretty incidental. Like, those are the three big ones, and you can't really punch any of them. You can, I guess, pull out an actual villain, and I, I guess you could have a superhero fight the tobacco lobby, but that's kind of a lot for 16 pages. It's also a little bit too conceptual for a comic that's basically aimed at kids, at potential end smokers rather than, say, voters. So as a result, you end up with comics like Smokescreen. This is a free comic distributed by the American Cancer Society to raise awareness of some of the lesser known dangers of smoking. Like getting ensnared in a supervillain-led high school sports gambling ring. Now, Smokescreen was originally published in 1982. No writer or artist were credited, understandably, but... But it was republished in 1998 and then in 2000. In both of those versions, it featured updated art by David Tata, but the same original dialogue. I guess someone looked at it and was like, no, no, this is timeless. I, I really wish I could find those. I actually tried super hard to track down the re-releases using both legit and nefarious means, and I couldn't. And I mean, I grew up on the original, seeing that like very, very 1980s dialogue on like 2000 era costumes would have been amazing. I found one panel from it. I found, I found Smoke, Smokescreen's new costume. Is it any good? No. Well, that's the shame. It's actually, it's, it's really, it's sad. It's really boring. Like, it was really bad before, but it was at least pretty funny. And now it's just sort of like, yep, that's, that's there. It's thing. Unfortunate. So what's the story? Power Man, Luke Cage, is volunteer coaching a citywide teen track team. He's doing this, by the way, as Power Man. And the, the team is preparing for its final big race before summer vacation. Big citywide race. By remarkable coincidence... Mild-mannered photographer Peter Parker is covering this for the Bugle as a human interest story. Okay, we gotta talk fashion here because it's a story with Power Man in it. Now, you may be familiar with Luke Cage from, like, the Netflix series or from recent Avengers, but if you haven't seen his 70s and 80s outfit, which was a sort of open-to-the-waist, bright yellow collared shirt, a silver tiara, a chain as a belt, jeans, and big yellow pirate boots, then you are missing out. And these kids in their tight yellow sleeveless shirts and short green shorts who are on the running team, I kind of feel like that's the level one version of Power Man's level 99 outfit. Like, at level 10, they get their yellow pirate boots. At level 20, they get their chain belt. And only when they hit level 90 did they get that amazing tiara. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Well, Power Man is here to coach and to supervise and to be a fashion inspiration, but trouble is afoot. That's right, because young track star Brett Jackson is not performing at capacity. He is not on top of his game. And everyone is concerned. Jackson has come in second, not first in a practice race. And Power Man is sufficiently alarmed by this that he pulls Peter aside and cautions him not to report on Jackson's slipping skills because the Daily Bugle would definitely really want an expose on the high schooler who came in second and didn't do quite his best at track practice that week. Like, I'm sure J. J Jonah Jameson would be all over that. Parker, give me pictures of Spider-Man and also high school track star Brett Jackson. Failing, but not like failing, just succeeding a little less than usual. Now, we the readers learn that Brett is not only getting second place, but he's involved in some shady, shady stuff. That's right. He whispers to his girlfriend, Carol, who we know is bad news because she is not wearing a track uniform. She's just wearing fashion clothes that he needs a cigarette. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Now, 
After practice, it gets worse. Brett, Carol, and a blonde youth named Danny, which I'd like to point out is not a great thing to name a random blonde guy in a comic starring Power Man, head down to the Southside Social Club to quote-unquote hang out. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Blonde youth named Danny? Yeah. Can he turn into a centaur? Probably. Okay, well that's good. Can Danny Rand turn into a centaur? I mean, he punched a dragon in the heart. I'd imagine he can do a lot of things. So I'm going to take that as a yes and just continue on with this story. Hanging out is regularly described in bold letters, and it is it is treated as an, as an alternative to more wholesome activities like homework and get, getting enough sleep. You already know that they are up to no good if they're heading to this place to hang out. Also because their, their more wholesome friend Amy will, will have nothing of this tomfoolery. Miles, I have a superhero pop quiz for you. Okay. You've read many of these PSA comics. We've gotten through through two very helpful comics today. And I want to see if you feel like your moral reasoning is up to snuff. So here's the pop quiz. You are an adult volunteer track coach. And one of your students' performance is slipping very slightly. Do you? A. Confront the kid firmly but compassionately and find out what's going on. B. Ask the kid's friends what's up. Because it might be, you know, inappropriate or overly confrontational to talk to him directly. C. Track the kid like a fucking stalker. I want to crawl out of his television. I'm sorry. That's not in your power set. However, you can sneak along after him as he heads to the South Side Social Club. And you'll be in good company because that is exactly what Power Man does. Now... Power Man discovers that the Southside Social Club is run by a balding man named Jake. Jake is dressed in a really terrible green suit with a plaid vest, and he hands out cigarettes. So aside from the cigarettes, the Southside Social Club actually looks pretty great. I mean, it's got pool, it's got pinball, it's got arcade games, it's got overhead lighting. And the Social Club owner even has his own armed guards, just like any other youth arcade. And what armed guards they are, but we'll get to them later. Now, I kind of want to talk about this because this is something that, this is a scenario that comes up in a lot of anti-smoking stories. No one ever offers other people cigarettes. Like, you have to ask for them. I mean, I guess kids who are trying to make friends might do that. I don't know. I wasn't one of the cool kids. We didn't have cigarettes. We just had, like, secret of mana. Yeah, no, but the kids who are trying to make friends don't smoke because they're not cool. Huh. This is confusing. Being a child is confusing. No, but but accepting a cigarette from a kid who's trying to make friends wouldn't be something that you did because you were trying to be cool because the whole reason that the kid's offering the cigarette to you is because they're not cool and are attempting to achieve coolness or at least buy it with cigarettes. So that doesn't actually make any sense either. The point is, to our, our teenage listeners, no one actually gives a fuck if you don't smoke. It's okay. And your friends who smoke will be vaguely relieved that you won't try to bum cigarettes from them. Well, it's not just Power Man who's spying on this den of iniquity, this wretched hive of scum and villainy. Spider-Man is also there. Yeah, uh, Spider-Man just sort of came along because why have one adult creepily follow a bunch of teenagers when you can have two? The age-old question. Power Man explains to Spider-Man why he is there. Brett, you see, used to be an upstanding youth and a star athlete with Olympic dreams until he became involved with obvious no-good Nick Carroll. Uh, Power Man does not use the word no-good Nick, although I really wish he did. Under Carroll's nefarious polo-shirted spell, he, he began hanging out with what the comic describes as her strange friends, skipping practice, staying out late, and smoking. Power Man and Spider-Man agree that this is no good at all and probably a sign of something other than Brett being a totally normal teenager. Ooh, maybe it's teen pregnancy. Maybe it's teen pregnancy. Maybe Brett's pregnant. That might be stranger danger. Well, the two of them are two well-known, two-stock teenagers, so Spider-Man has an idea. Uh, I would say Power Man and uh, Spider-Man are too well-known because otherwise you've just said that Brett and Carol are too well-known to stock teenagers. <laughs> I mean, everyone kind of does in this comic, but... I don't think we need to explain that. Well, anyway, Power Man and Spider-Man are too well-known to stalk teenagers themselves, so... So they call in a friend. They, they call in Spider-Man's friend Storm, who will stalk the teenagers on their behalf, because I guess she's subtle. I mean, in this era, she's wearing a black bathing suit, a tiara, and a cape. Although I gotta say, while it doesn't make a lot of sense to have Storm here, it is kind of cool that of the two unmasked heroes, they're both black and uh, that they're two-thirds of the main cast. Actually, that kind of made me wonder. Like, it's unusual to have 
a majority black cast in a comic, especially during the 80s, and Brett himself and Carol herself are also black. Was this specifically targeted at black teenagers, I wonder, or was that just the way the comic happened to turn out? I really don't know if anything in this comic was actually done deliberately, Miles. Well, it's nice to have representation even when nothing makes any sense. Back in class the next day, Brett's downward spiral continues as he hits near rock bottom, falling asleep during a lecture about the respiratory system. Clearly, this is a child in dire straits, and his science teacher takes a moment from the lecture to caution Brett about his life choices and their possible repercussions. So we're going to find out that Smokescreen is the villain of this comic, but based on Brett's problems, it could just as easily be Up Too Late Screen, or Skip's Breakfast Screen, or Full of Himself Screen. No, all of these are sort of tangential side effects to smoking, but smoking is actually is, is the heart of Smokescreen's big nefarious plan, and we're, we're going to get to that shortly. The principal, or his secretary, decides that it's time for some hardcore ethical breaches. They let Power Man, they straight up let Power Man snoop through Brett and Carol's school records. What the hell? Are we sure this isn't a cautionary tale about abuse of privacy? I mean, come on. I feel fairly strongly that it is. And this is this has the same problem that, that the Stranger Danger story did, which is that the behavior that the superheroes are engaging in nominally to combat one vice is actually really bad in other ways. Yeah, you gotta be careful about that shit. Brett is convinced that he can still win the big race, but his teammates are less certain. That's okay, Brett doesn't need those losers. He has Jake and Jake's green suit and also Jake's cohorts, one of whom might be a park ranger and the other whom is a guy in sunglasses and maybe John Travolta? Anyway, they're cool and they probably do smoking, which is how you can tell they're cool. But they do have a nefarious agenda, and the stalking storm watches them go give a mysterious boss an update on Brett. Okay, so you don't see the boss at first, and I used to read Chick Tracts for fun, so I was super convinced that their boss was going to be Satan, and then I was really disappointed when it wasn't. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Smokescreen's a real letdown after Satan. Right! Especially Jack's chick-style Satan, who is really, really funny. Storm follows the bad guys into a basement, but is quickly engulfed in foul smoke, and before she can use her powers to dissipate it, is knocked out. Um, and a, a nefarious silhouette tells us... Just now, I am not ready to have the world know of my existence. But soon enough, the world shall hear of the man called Smokescreen. Nah. We gotta talk about this guy, because again, going back to fashion, wow. Yeah, look at this jackass. He is wearing a sleeveless black unitard with a cloud and the letters S on the front. First of all, never a good choice to put your initials on your costume if those are your initials. And he's also got a cloud belt with no buckle and a bunch of, like, gold bracelets. Yeah, pretty sweet cape, too. Yeah, that is a very, very nice cape. So what is Smokescreen's nefarious plan? And corollary question, is it the best plan of all time and could not improve in any way? I, I no, it is definitely not a good plan. Here is Smokescreen's plan. Smokescreen wants Brett to throw the race. But he's not going to have Brett throw the race deliberately because he knows Brett would never lose on purpose. Instead, he has gotten his cohorts, he has set up this entire fucking social club to get Brett to smoke cigarettes and stay out late because those things will affect his athletic performance. Okay, I think I have a theory here. We earlier had Power Man tell Peter Parker not to report on this obviously gigantically newsworthy event. Here we also have a supervillain and an entire minor crim criminal syndicate who are uh, basing their whole plot around high school sports. Are high school sports like a way, way bigger deal in the Marvel Universe than they are in real life? Like, are they the equivalent of what college sports are in real life? Or, I don't know, professional wrestling? Like, maybe that makes the rest of this make sense. So, I know in a lot of small towns they are, but this is in New York City. Hmm. So, um, I'm just gonna have to chalk this up to baffling bullshit. I actually really love the idea that Smokescreen is just deeply, deeply incompetent, because his whole plan for this is that he's then gonna get odds. There's, there's a huge high school sports betting scene, and he's gonna bet against Brett, in, and, and the odds are highly in Brett's favor, so he'll make tons of money. And the plan 
is that he's going to use this money to take over the mob in New York. So I sort of assume that about an hour and a half after this comic ends, some real low-level operative for the kingpin just shoots him? That actually seems very likely. Now I almost feel bad for Smokescreen. No, man, he he dug his overly elaborate grave himself. (laughs) Well said. Speaking of overly elaborate graves, he decides at this point that his subtle approach isn't certain enough. The time has come to tell Brett that he has to throw the race on purpose. At this point, the comic ceases to be about the dangers of smoking and becomes really intensely for about four pages about the dangers of overtraining. It does, because Spider-Man and Power Man burst in, they came looking when Storm didn't report back, and beat the hell out of the thugs. Smokescreen has, you know, vanished in a puff of tobacco smoke or something along those lines. Oh yeah, they don't know about Smokescreen. Smokescreen has already disappeared by now. And in fact, Smokescreen actually hasn't talked to Brett, it's just the thugs who've talked to him. So he doesn't know about Smokescreen either. Only Jake and his buddies, and Storm, who's still MIA, know about Smokescreen. But Brett won't throw the race, and he's convinced he can still win. And Power Man warns him, like every three panels, not to overtrain, but he does anyway, and he loses. So I actually really like that Brett trains hard, but only gets second place, even though it looks for a second like he's going to win. It's more real, and I mean, given that he's messed up his lungs for a little while smoking, it kind of makes sense. Like, as black and white as this comic is, I like that this part is great. Part of why Dare was kind of such a joke to us when we were in high school was that it was all black and white. Although the whole thing where all vices are equally bad, I guess that is pretty Dare. But that's not the end, um, because Storm Storm manages to escape. Her claustrophobia, by the way, does not play into this comic. I kept kind of vaguely expecting it to, but it didn't, so whatever. She breaks out, and she heads to the track to tell the guys about the secret guy pulling all of the strings, Smokescreen, because remember, none of the good guys know about him yet. And, and his secret plan to, to control all of the high school sports gambling and, and take over the local mob They all go and beat him up. It turns out that his only actual power was he had had a lot of smoke and like some kind of hidden filter mask in his costume. That doesn't make any sense. We can totally see his nose and his mouth. It's a very well-hidden filter mask. Okay, I'll buy that. Anyway, he's kind of a dick, so he gets beaten up and, and left to be taken out by whatever mobster's turf he's encroaching on. Here, I'm sure someone's already got this locked down. And we all leave having learned a valuable life lesson about how smoking leads to throwing high school sports events for shitty would-be mobsters who are probably going to get murdered. And they all lived happily ever after. So on the back cover, we see Power Man holding up a big stone block with the 12 sort of anti-smoking commandments on it, storm flying above. But Spider-Man is clinging to the side of the block that is clearly very, very heavy and Power Man is having trouble keeping aloft. Peter, you are not helping. What are the 12 anti-smoking commandments? Are they like honor you're not smoking and you're not smoking? I, I, this is, this is, this is really weird and also like treading into remarkably religious to- territory for the American Cancer Association. Yeah, it's more along the lines of cigarettes having a lot of chemicals in them. And if you quit, then your lungs will be okay again in a little while. So uh, maybe not commandments so much as factoids. And they carved these on stone tablets? Well, a big stone block anyway. It's kind of like that cover from Secret Wars where Hulk is holding up the mountain. Kind of like that. This is ter- This is a terrible comic, man. I don't feel like I learned anything. <laughs> I learned that if your initials are SS, you shouldn't put them on your shirt. I already knew that. Yeah, I guess I did too. So those are the three comics we have for you. You have now learned about smoking, how to avoid kidnapping, and the State Fair of Texas in 1983. Is this important continuity-wise? Oh, of course not. But I gotta say, I had so much fun looking at these, especially that State Fair one, which I have not stopped thinking about since I first started reading it. So obviously, State Fair was your favorite of this lot. Mine, I think, was Stranger Danger, both for its deeply baffling second act and for the fact that it actually was stuff that it kind of made sense for those specific X-Men to be warning the kids about and and for the fact that it was actually, you know, good information. And I was thinking more about that and I, I made a list because this is something that is a perennial problem with public service announcements using superheroes. But I, I made a list of X-Men whom the champions of specific causes might want to turn to if they're looking for a superheroic champion or make some kind of licensing agreement with Marvel um, to create PSAs with. Who do we have? Well, first of all, I feel like identity theft is a modern issue. It's a really important one, and it's one that's affecting people at younger and younger ages. And the obvious choice to talk about identity theft is Jean Grey. 
<laughs> right. And she could address it not only in terms of digital safety, but in terms of, you know, cosmic forces who duplicate you and take over your life. And I know you mentioned uh, Cable earlier, talking about basically anything. Yeah, yeah, literally anything Cable can talk about. But you could also do a really good, like, child endangerment comic based around Cable in, in early X-Factor and the fact that not that most kids don't actually have telekinetic force bubbles. Hmm, valid point. But, like, I really just want someone to show up and force X-Factor to take mandatory parenting classes. Seems entirely reasonable. What else? As there's more and more public discussion around um, BDSM, I think Emma Frost obviously knows her way around that. She's been at the Hellfire Club enough to have a long list of don'ts. In fact, I can actually imagine a very bored Emma Frost talking about, like, 101-level bondage safety as, like, the Hellfire Club intro video. <laughs> and don't put anything on someone's neck that's going to pull at the front of it or restrict breathing. As she just sort of looks at her nails and... And kicks someone over off screen. <laughs> like, this is why you never want to be in debt, Sebastian Shaw. Cyclops and Lee Forrester on boat safety would actually be fucking delightful, and that, I think that would be great. I think that would actually be a genuinely fairly good comic. I feel like Peter Corbeau would come in for a special announcement at the very end. He's only there for a couple sentences because he's so famous and powerful, but there he is to add as much credibility as he can. No, no. Peter Corbeau is too good to do, like, peon-level PSAs. He is the one who does, like... Heat shield maintenance PSAs for astronauts. He does really specialized, really high-level PSA comics. How to not talk to strangers, like, while you're in orbit. I'm super doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau. You may know me from my award-winning non-fiction educational television series, The Voyage of the Mimi, and also as the face that appears on your communication screen to signal that a disaster is really important and probably universe-spanning. And I'm here to tell you about premarital sex. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so, Laura Kinney. Laura Kinney would be great. She would do PSAs on something really fucked up and violent. Although, actually, no, no, not, not anymore. Because now, now she's got Gabby, and they've been hanging out with Doc, and actually, I think the, the three of them just doing a series of, like, how-to person PSAs. Like, here's how you go to the grocery store without killing anyone. So, those are your hypotheticals, Jay. But the listeners have some input as well. Yeah, listeners, we would love for you to send us your X-Men PSAs. Um, this is an official challenge. We haven't done an official challenge in a really, really long time. We've sort of had to send us comments, but this is a challenge. Send us an email to explainthexmen at gmail.com with the subject line PSA and a representation of your X-Men PSA. It can be a comic. It can be written. It can be a video. We will collect them all. We'll put them on the website around New Year's. So you've got you've got a few weeks to do this, to get this together. It's your X-Men PSA. It does not have to be on a real issue. It does have to be a real PSA. I'm going to set your deadline for this. Your deadline for this is going to be December 27th so that I can put them up for the New Year's and we can start the New Year on a safe and happy note with the X-Men and premarital sex. Speaking of input from listeners, you've got questions. All right, GPAC3 asks on Tumblr. What do you think of the idea of Disney buying Fox and thus the X-Men becoming part of the MCU? Good idea? Bad idea? So for anyone unfamiliar, currently it's looking like Disney is actually going to buy Fox's movie production arm, at which point all the Fox movies, the X-Men movies, Fantastic Four, etc., would be under the banner of Disney and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like with the Avengers and stuff. I have a lot of trouble separating my answer to this question and its narrative implications from my general intense concern about communications monopolies. So, um, Miles, why don't you take a stab at it? Okay, so narratively, it sounds pretty cool at first. I mean, all the heroes would be in the same universe. The X-Men would be handled by Marvel, who seem to overall be much better at superhero movies. But in a cinematic universe that's more grounded than the comics universe is, the question of why bigotry exists toward mutants but not toward other superpower types... I think that kind of becomes much more of an obstacle, and the prominence of the Inhumans, who are kind of like mutants but not exactly, doesn't really help either. To be fair, did anyone actually watch or care about the cinematic Inhumans? Uh, my dad did. He liked it, but mainly just because he saw the characters from his childhood on the screen. Dude, I love your dad, but he watches and enjoys literally everything ever put on a screen. Like, I don't know that he has ever disliked anything. Pretty much that. But... 
I think that the X-Men really work better mostly isolated. There's more of a chance to focus on the metaphor and the characters rather than them getting lost in these big world-shaking events. With movies, you have, like, what, two hours every couple of years instead of 22 pages every two to four weeks, plus whatever guest appearances and tie-ins exist that month. So there's less room to do a little bit of everything the way that comics can do. In movies, you really need to focus. Otherwise, you can lose what makes those characters special, and as non-standard superheroes, the X-Men need to stay special. So I think my take is, the X-Men in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I don't think it would work, but the Fantastic Four would actually be super amazing. I would be all about that. Alex asks via email, where can I learn more about my new favorite X-Men blue character, Bloodstorm? She's the coolest. I was so mad when she died, I skipped the issue where she came back, but I'm really happy to see her on the current Crosstime Caper story. Okay, Alex, you are in luck. Bloodstorm has a, a long comics history, long if, if fairly narrow. She has appeared, as far as I know, only in one series, the one she comes from. That is Mutant X, which ran from 1998 to 2001, has nothing to do with the TV show of the same name. Uh, it's also notable as home to the only well-adjusted Cyclops in the entire multiverse. It's a series that focuses on, on Havoc doing some um, reality jumping and having a lot of very weird adventures. Uh, Bloodstorm features prominently in the first arc. You can look her up over there. It's, it's a surprisingly decent series. It's pretty silly. It's fairly overwrought. Um, it's got some very solid late 90s Carrie Nord art. So yeah, um, Mutant X. Jane Miles Explain the X-Men is a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with a variety of fictional concepts and or characters acknowledging folks online of course, we must gain the perspective of the angry Claremontian narrator. Do you fancy yourself an empiricist, Mac Hume? Your forefather David knew better, that humans like you are governed instead by illogical passions, prone to temptation, and weak to the siren call of those like Matt Librasser, who would ensnare you in a web of delights only to feast on what remains of your judgment body, and soul. But on the upside, we're going to head now over to the Texas State Fair for a word with the one, the only, Master of Magnetism. Thanks to those pesky, State Fair-attending X-Men, my brotherhood of evil mutants has lost access to the surprisingly specific powers of the young mutant Equus. Why did the child care so much about filthy, useless horses when he was a member of the superior mutant race? But just as my mastery of magnetism knows no bounds, neither does my perseverance. Still, Magneto is no fool and learns from his errors. Thus shall Matthew Payne not learn of my disdain for mewling infants as I recruit him at Castillo de Murcia's baby-jumping festival. And Thais von Domburg must remain ignorant of my contempt for root vegetables as I welcome him to my mutant army at the Night of the Radishes in Oaxaca. My brotherhood shall grow in power." For not even Charles Xavier and his foolish students can attend every bargain-priced, educational, and family-friendly festival. So swears Magneto! I would totally go to Night of the Radishes. I mean, it actually looks pretty cool. Like, they carved giant radishes into, like, people and monsters and stuff. Should we go to Oaxaca sometime? Oh, wait, this is a real thing? You looked up? You, you looked these up? Those are both real things, and there are so many other awesome weird ones. Wait, what the hell is a baby jumping festival? Are the babies jumping, or, like, are people jumping over the babies? People jump over babies. It seems, uh, not fully safe. There's a whole festival devoted to this? I'm assuming they also have snacks. Do you think X Factor founded it? <laughs> Probably so. And with that... Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be cracking open a whole new X-Men series and lighting up the night sky. With our giant-sized winter special. Or with arson. Eh, one of those. Maybe both. Maybe both.